Let's get out our Bibles. Open them up to Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. I know uh, Brother Adam and Sister Tori welcomed you all, and I'd like to extend a welcome to you as well. If you're a first-timer here or new, or if you're on Living Word, watching on Living Word Live today, I welcome you as well. And uh, I thank the Lord for Living Word Live. I know that the Lord is using it. I hear uh, many testimonies about the Lord using it, so I'm glad for that. Praise God. Luke 23, 46. To set the scene, Jesus is on the cross. It is afternoon, and those he came to save scorned him, and they have here nailed him to the cross. And in verse 46, we hear some of the last words of Jesus before he expired. It says here, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. He breathed his last. He expired, is what it means. And uh, this is where I was last week, uh, one week ago talking to you about how Jesus depended on the Father at death, showing us the way, honestly, showing us how we need to depend on God right up into our last breath. The world is beset by the fear of death, but Jesus showed us the the way to approach death with faith, And doing that by committing or entrusting his spirit into the hands of the Father. So first, this morning, I'd like to review a bit of what I covered last week. And then secondly, I'd like to go further by talking about the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Ghost while he lived. Now, this is while he's expiring, while he's breathing his last. But I'd like to talk to you as I go along this morning about the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Ghost while he lived. Well, last week I uh, showed you in the Word of God how Jesus entrusted his own spirit into the care of the Father. To put it plainly and concretely, Jesus was trusting the Father for a future event, namely, that the Father would raise him from the dead. Praise God. When Jesus says, I commit my spirit into your hands, O Father, he might as well be saying, I know, Father, that you're going to raise me up shortly after I breathe my last Um, I quoted to you last week at least eight different passages from the Bible. I counted eight last night. Um, In case I missed one or two, I'll say at least eight verses. We could call them proof texts that state that Jesus did not rise from the grave on his own power but that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Father, by his power, saw his Son, who had taken upon him the sin of the world, who was himself a perfect lamb without blemish, so to speak, worthy that death would not keep him. And to justify our faith in God, raised him from from the dead. Now, you know, God could have done a lot of things to prove that he's God. Like, deliver the mail on time. Like, uh, put your newspaper in the correct location inside the storm door on the front of the house. That's where I want it and specified it to be. But, you know, getting the mail to you on time or putting the newspaper where it belongs really wouldn't have done a good job of proving that God is God. How does this work? Raising somebody out of the grave 
and transforming his flesh so that his flesh would never ever corrupt, never ever weaken, never ever suffer, would be immortal. How about that for proving that God is God? Hallelujah. I like that better than delivering the mail on time. As much respect as I have for the mailman going through snow and sleet and rain and cold and all that stuff to get you your mail, I think God proved that he's God, not a good mailman. Acts chapter 2, verse 27. This was one of my key verses a week ago. This is quoting Psalm 16, a messianic psalm written by David, prophetically, David in the role of prophet. And Peter is quoting it in the first Christian sermon. Acts 2.27, say, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Like I said, he's quoting a psalm that was written about a thousand years before he quotes it. And it's about how the Messiah would one day entrust not only his spirit, but also his soul into the care of God. We're finding out here, while we're studying the resurrection of Jesus, we're finding out that Jesus was a triune man. That he was body, soul, and spirit. That when he took on flesh and became a human being, when God became a human being, he took on the triune nature of humanity. Body, soul, and spirit. So Peter's quoting, like I said, a prophetic verse from the Bible, from Psalm 16, but then he goes on to explain it a bit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 31, he says, he, he's referring there to David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, or Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. Uh, Jesus' body was only in the grave a short time, short enough that there was no um, very evident and outward signs of decay in his flesh when he was resurrected. I understand, scientifically speaking, that decay begins minutes after one dies. You know, but it's, it's very interior at that point. It's very you know, mi- microscopic the decay that begins to take place right after death. You wouldn't look at a corpse and see it happening. You wouldn't see it happening when you look at a corpse for a while. And Jesus' flesh did not even get a chance to get there before God raised it up, praise God. We are learning on the side, in a sense, that Jesus had his own spirit, his own soul, his own body, like you. And last year, I referred to many Bible texts for each one of them. Jesus' flesh, Jesus' soul, and Jesus' spirit. Many times, Jesus even refers to his own soul or his own spirit. He had become a triune human who was dependent on God Last week, I talked to you a lot about um, Hades and the nature of Hades and that it's not, it's not quite the same as hell. It's uh, the hell that we think of, the place of burning and destruction. That's oversimplified version of Hades. It was the realm of the dead, though. And with that, I'd like to go on. Praise God. Jesus, when he came to this world, from his eternal abode abode in heaven, he took on the entire triune nature of humanity. 
Would you go with me? Let's, uh, let's qualify this message, this morning's message, uh, right off the start and confirm some really solid teaching in the Word of God. Let's go to uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, about Jesus. Don't you love to study about who Jesus is? Getting to know him better. Have an awesome impact on our lives to know Jesus better. Okay, John 1, 1, I'm jumping right to the very end of the verse. It says, the Word was God. That's pretty clear, right? The Word was God. The eternal Word was God. Verse 2 says, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Praise God. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Would you reflect on that for a moment? This is a reference to the Word which we learn a few verses later, is actually a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the eternal word of God. But if you can think about this for a second, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That means he pre-exists all material creation. That means he himself was never made, right? He pre-exists all things that were made. Nothing was made except by him. That means Jesus was never made. Jesus existed already. Now, my grandkids ask me sometimes, okay, but where did Jesus come from? Well, I know, it's a mind bender. He didn't come from anywhere. He always was. He always existed. There never was a time or a place where Jesus didn't exist. The eternal word of God, amen? And verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. If we read on to verse 14, we'll see, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a reference to Jesus. The word is Jesus. Am I telling you the truth? Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. And again, I'm going to jump right to the end of the verse to make sure we're Tracking who's being referred to, who exactly is being referred to, the end of verse 13 says, His dear Son. His dear Son. God's dear Son. This is a reference to Jesus, in other words. And verse 12 says, I'm sorry, verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood. That clarifies, right? We're referring to Jesus here. He's the one who shed his blood. He's the one who redeemed us. We have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the origin of every creature, In other words, the beginning of every creature and the image of God. We didn't see God until we saw Jesus. And verse 16 says, For by him, there is no change in reference here. We're still talking about Jesus. By him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth. Visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. We can talk about angels, spirit beings, the beasts that hover around the throne of God. We don't see all these things now, but all these things, the things that are visible to us, the mountains and the earth and the seas and the stars and the planets and the galaxies, 
All the things we see, the things we don't see, all were created by Jesus. Glory to God. Glory to Jesus. And they were created by him and for him. Even the evil spirits were created by him and for him, but they used their freedom to rebel against the Lord. They, they shouldn't have done that. Verse 18 says, And he is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus. Praise God. It says in chapter 2, verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of God, of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the Godhead bodily in Jesus. And can we go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6? This is all my qualifications. No doubt about it. Jesus is God. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Don't believe any spirit that says otherwise. God came to this world. Philippians 2, 6. Again, a reference to Christ Jesus in the previous verse. Verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't cheating. He wasn't lying. He wasn't deceiving. He wasn't stealing God's glory to be equal with God. The Bible says he was with God and he was God. Am I telling you the truth? He was no stealer. He was no thief. He was no pretender to be equal with God. Verse 7 says, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Just how much in the likeness? In body and in soul and in spirit and in death that his soul and spirit left his body and went to the realm of the dead, Hades. I can tell you, I don't believe that Jesus went to Hades and suffered flames and heat and and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and crying, and, and I don't believe that he went to Hades and suffered. I believe like all the faithful in God, he went to Hades to a waiting in comfort department, a waiting in comfort place called Abraham's bosom, called paradise. Jesus didn't tell the thief on the cross next to him, today you'll be with me in flames. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. When my soul and spirit leaves my body, when your soul and spirit leaves your body, we'll be together in paradise. He could have also told them, you won't be there for very long and neither will I. Even though David, the apostle Peter, said, David did not ascend into heaven. He did not ascend into heaven. Here we see in Philippians, in verse 8, that Jesus humbled himself. In verse 7, we read that he made himself. He took upon him. In verse 9, we read that God hath highly exalted him. Jesus took this incredible step to save our souls to become a man. Amen? And be obedient to the Father. He never was obedient to the Father before in all of his eternal existence. He never had to be. They did everything together. 
But once he became a man, he had to obey. He learned something that was completely outside of his previous experience. All this is to say, never make any mistake about it. Jesus is God. Jesus is definitely and clearly God. No question about it. Okay, with that, I'd like to move to the new material for this week. And that is the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Ghost. And I'd like to zero in, especially on the book of Luke. I'd like to stay right in the book of Luke. Uh, Sometimes, you know, we take the approach to find out as much as we can about a particular event by checking across all the Gospels. It's a very good Bible study technique. Very, an excellent Bible study technique. We look for what is theologians call the harmony of the Gospels. And we look across the Gospels. But we also have to realize that Matthew wrote a Matthew Gospel. And he picked out certain details from the life of Jesus for a particular audience and to give a particular message. So sometimes another excellent Bible study technique is to stay within one of the Gospels and try to absorb what that particular writer was getting at. And I know that Luke was not actually one of the followers of Jesus while Jesus was here in his flesh and blood, but that he came to the Lord after the resurrection of Christ. And I believe that he reflects a very important message and perspective for us who have also come to Christ after the age of the apostles, after the age of the first church. We're sort of like Luke in that way. So Luke chapter 3, verse 21. We're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke here and try to absorb Luke's message about Jesus and the Holy Ghost. So we could call this Jesus and the Holy Ghost according to Luke. This is confirmed in the other Gospels in some cases, but it is very strong in Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus, also being baptized and praying, I have to be honest with you, until I studied and prepared for this word, I had never noticed that after Jesus was dunked in the water by John the baptizer, that he prayed, like we do in the tank. We have a tank behind the curtain there, if you don't already know about it. We baptize folks when they turn to Christ. We dunk them right under the water all the way. We figure, you know, let's not go halfway about this with any sprinkling or such. Let's, let's just dunk them down all the way. If they haven't humbled themselves before the Lord, maybe they will if we hold them under long enough. <laughs> You know when I'm joking, right? But a lot of times people come up and they are really in a zone with the Lord, aren't they? They're talking to the Lord. And I know I received my call as a preacher in the baptism tank after I came out of the water and I was praying. I just skip this detail somehow that when Jesus came out of the water, he was praying. He didn't just rush out of the water. It just wasn't, you know, sort of a ritual to him and automatic. He was into it and he was praying, praise God. And then it says, the heaven was opened, verse 22, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. Oh, wow, praise God. We see all in this one verse how the Father, the Holy Ghost, and the Son are distinct from each other. Do we or do we not? I mean, I don't think Jesus is the Father 
And as Brother Bob said years ago when he was uh, coming against the Jesus-only doctrine, what do you think? Jesus is a ventriloquist? That he's projecting his voice to come from heaven? No, that's the Father in heaven talking to the Son who's on the earth. And that was the Holy Ghost descending visibly in the shape of a, it looked like a dove. It would remind you of a dove. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There's your Trinity teaching right there in, in one event. Three persons of one essence. The Son is praying after he was baptized. And I don't believe that Jesus was praying simply to show us what to do when we get baptized. Come on, Jesus is not just an actor. He's doing something that means something and that's practical and that's gonna, it's going to have an effect. And it, it's something he wants to do and needs to do, don't you think? He prayed because praying makes a difference. He prayed a lot, didn't he? Why did he pray a lot? Because when he came from heaven and took on flesh, he became a man with a body and a soul and a spirit. And if you have a body, a soul, and a spirit, and you're a human being, you need to pray. By the way, we're going to have prayer meeting tonight. Uh, we won't, we won't have a meeting devoted especially to the uh, giving the word of God, but we will have a meeting that is more emphasized, putting the greater emphasis on corporate prayer again. We will have that type of meeting tonight, Lord willing. Amen? The Father assesses the Son. And the Father likes what he sees. Out of obedience to God, Jesus is getting baptized. Uh, Out of relationship with God, he's praying. And the Father likes what he sees. He says, I am well pleased. It means I am totally satisfied. The Son is praying. I don't think of Jesus as floating above human temptations. Does the Bible not say that he was tempted in all areas? Yet without sin. Temptation is one thing, sin is another. Jesus was tempted yet without sin. He wasn't floating above the temptations as if they weren't real. A temptation is not even a temptation if you can't follow it. If you can't sin out of it. But Jesus felt the temptations, but he did not go forward into sin. Praise God. He didn't just float above temptations. In other words, saints, he was tempted to be lazy. Oh no, not Jesus. No, he he didn't become lazy. He didn't yield to the temptation, but he was tempted to be lazy. He was tempted to be apathetic. He was tempted to doubt. Um, A thought flitted into his mind, why don't you doubt? A thought flitted into his mind, come on, come on, don't go out in front of everybody. You're just bringing a lot of trouble and a lot of work on yourself, a lot of grief on yourself. Why don't you just lay back in mediocrity? Be a good son, be a good provider. Just lay back, just be a pew warmer. Jesus felt the temptations, but he didn't yield to the temptations, did he? Amen? Praise God. He was tempted to be cynical. He was tempted to be mediocre. Tempted to doubt. But rather than give in to any of these temptations, he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah! Praise God! As he was talking to God, his Father, God the Father, God the Holy Ghost descends upon him. The Holy Ghost was distinct from the Son as the Father was distinct from the Son. And so as the Son prayed to the Father, 
The Father sent the Holy Ghost to the Son. Praise God. You say, how does that line up with him being God? I think it lines up fine. God emptied himself of his power and his authority, and he came to this world and took on in totality human nature while he never uh, yielded up his divinity. He was totally God and totally man. The Bible tells us this detail, that Jesus prayed. Oh, that was important to Luke. Mark doesn't have that detail. Matthew doesn't have it. But Luke, in his interviews with eyewitnesses to this event, picked up on that Jesus prayed. Oh, it is... it is so, it just seems so important to me right now that Jesus prayed. It was important to Luke. He felt inspired of the Holy Ghost to put that detail in. It's important to us to see the connection between his obedience. He got baptized, he submitted to that ordinance. Prayer and the empowering of the Holy Ghost. We might say, well, brother, wait, wait, wait. I thought the Holy Spirit was everywhere. Oh, but you got to read the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, you, you learn that from the Bible, that the Holy Spirit is everywhere. But the Bible has account after account of the special presence of the Lord visiting a certain place and a certain time and a certain person. Lots and lots of cases of that. In fact, that's what the Bible is about. The special visitation of the Lord to a human life. Like what so many of us have experienced in our lifetimes. Amen? It was our time. This was Jesus' time. He was filled as he was baptized in submission to God and he was praying. Turn over just a page maybe to Luke chapter 4 verse 1. Remember we're following Luke here. It says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke perceives that Jesus was filled with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost descended upon him when he was baptized and the next thing Jesus does is head out into the wilderness, practically driven there by the Spirit, and he was full of the Holy Ghost and being full of the Holy Ghost rendered him able to resist and fight all the temptations of the devil. Praise God. You can believe that Jesus was always equally full of the Holy Ghost at this time as at any other time. I don't blame you for thinking that. I won't try to talk you out of it. But I'll say this. Luke is not saying nothing. When he says Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost, he means something. And this detail has a big impact on how Jesus handles the temptations that the devil throws at him. Again, this is Luke. Again, this is a detail we should pay attention to. I don't see any reason other than prejudice to believe that Jesus was changed during the experience of chapter 3, Verses 21 and 22, when he, when he was baptized and he prayed and the Holy Ghost descended on him and a voice came out of heaven, I don't see any reason other than my own prejudice that Jesus must have been equally strong, equally filled, equally full of the Holy Ghost, equally prepared all his life and at every moment, which is like saying prayer didn't matter in Jesus' life. Now you're quiet. Not so many amens. Simply because you might not have thought about it this way. Even though it's actually pretty basic, isn't it? 
Did it matter when Jesus prayed the many times that he prayed? Did the Holy Ghost come to him during the many times that he prayed on mountaintops and in lonely places? Did he need to pray? Could he just ride the wave of being fulfilled prophecy? I am fulfilled prophecy and just ride that wave through all the troubles and temptations of life? Or did he need to pray? And did he need to be full of the Holy Ghost? Luke's not saying nothing. I can't help but read causation into this series of events. There is the obedience of Christ and getting baptized. There is the praying of Jesus to his Father. There is the Father's encouraging voice. There is the descent and infilling of the Holy Ghost. It seems to me that these events prepared Jesus and enabled Jesus to fast for 40 days and repel all the devil's temptations. And in fact, these events got Jesus ready for his earthly ministry, the years of his ministry. Let's go on, Luke 4.14. Remember, we're following the book of Luke here. He says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Notice Jesus had his spirit, he had his soul, but he also was full of the Holy Ghost in Luke. He also comes in the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about, chapter 4, verse 14. Luke, as he does in the book of Acts. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, right? As Luke does also in the book of Acts, he makes it clear that being full of the power of the Holy Ghost prepares Jesus to embark upon his ministry. Is that not a mirror image? Is that not a repeated image in the book of Acts? Let's go to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus, in one of his first sermons, he is in a synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds the place in it where he can read verse 18, Luke 4, 18, and just to find that passage in a scroll of those days, requires incredible familiarity with the Word of God. And he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now this is from the book of Isaiah. It was written 600 years before Jesus was on the earth. And it speaks in his voice. 600 years before it actually happened. But Jesus reads it as if it's happening right in that moment. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus had his own spirit. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus had his own soul. Thou shalt not abandon his soul to Hades. But Jesus also had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. The Holy Spirit filled him. The Holy Spirit empowered him. He said, the Holy Spirit is on me. He had an excellent spirit, didn't he? 
an excellent, a holy, and a pure spirit. His spirit was excellent. His spirit was the most excellent spirit of every, any human being that ever lived. At least, if you could compare him to anybody, you could compare him to Adam. His spirit was excellent, but he also needed the Holy Spirit. A second person in the Trinity of the same essence as Jesus, but he needed that person. He also needed the Father. He needed to talk to the Father, hear from the Father, connect with the Father. He needed a voice to come from heaven and confirm to him and strengthen him. You're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He needed the Holy Ghost. Let's think about who's writing this. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It is Luke. He is the one who writes about the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts when 120 Galileans are filled with the Holy Ghost. It's the first filling of the followers of Jesus with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, right? In Acts chapter 2. The sound of a rushing mighty wind. And they all spoke in tongues as God gave them ability. That's what the Bible says. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. That's Luke that's telling that story. This is Luke that's telling this story. About the early and important and overwhelming filling and equipping of Jesus Christ with the Holy Ghost. Luke makes it clearer than any other gospel writer that Jesus is filled with the Holy Ghost. It seems to me that Jesus had his own spirit, holy and divine, but that he also was blessed by the third person of the Godhead coming down upon him and filling him. And in that sense, Jesus is living for God the same way he asks us to live for God. With our own spirits, in our own souls, in our own temptations, in our own struggles, our own personalities, our own flesh, that we also can have the Spirit of the Lord upon us, anointing us to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. We can do it that way too. We can fight off the devil that way. We can overcome temptation that way. We can be prepared for ministry that way. We can pray for the sick and they shall be healed that way. To be filled with the Holy Ghost. To not get meaning from the Gospel of Luke. To not notice the pattern of development in the the coming of the Holy Ghost to Jesus is to render all of these details as insignificant, unimportant, having no message to them. But I'm telling you, I love to squeeze the message out of every verse of the Word of God, don't you? John 3.34 says, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. God giveth not the Spirit. Let's let's turn our Bibles to that verse. I know we're jumping out of the Gospel of Luke. We'll come back in a second. Give me a little liberty here. John 3.34 says, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Jesus is referring to himself. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Did he say that God doesn't give me the Spirit? When he says, God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, he's saying, God is giving me the Spirit. And he's saying, not by measure. How can you say, not by measure? Here's the only way I know. Start measuring. The only way to know that something is beyond measuring is to start measuring. And when you can't ever finish, you now can say, wow, that is a supply beyond measure. 
Oh, how do you know that? I tried measuring it and I couldn't do it. It was beyond my ability to measure. God the Father gives the Holy Ghost, here referred to as the Spirit, to the Son. There is more and more and more. You could measure it again and again and again. However you're going to measure it, doesn't really matter. Do whatever unit of measure you want, you're not going to get to the bottom of the barrel when it comes to Jesus. It's beyond measure, but let's not take it as an assumption either. Let's not take Jesus, the presence of the Holy Ghost in Jesus' life as an assumption and take it for granted. Neither Jesus nor the Gospel writers take this fullness of the Spirit for granted. Jesus does things to be full, like obey, like pray. He is not automatically and unavoidably full. It doesn't seem to me. And then what is the message to his followers? And now we return to the Gospel of Luke and we go to Luke 24, 49. Do you feel in you a refreshed sense of your need for the Holy Ghost? You need the Holy Ghost to avoid temptation, to overcome to repel those awful thoughts that come to you from the devil. To knock them away. You have to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Obey Him. It's never wrong. It's never bad to obey Him. Obey Him, obey Him, obey Him. Pray. Pray and pray and pray. And receive the Holy Ghost. Amen? What is the message of Jesus to His followers? And who is it that records this message? The only gospel writer to record this message. The one gospel writer who the Spirit highlighted for him the need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Luke 24, 49 are the words of Jesus. He says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Did Jesus say those words or not? According to our belief in the infallibility of the Word of God, Jesus said those words. Not sure where Luke learned of those words. It's, it's beside the point. He proves himself to be an excellent journalist, an excellent researcher. He goes right to the eyewitnesses, the people who actually heard and saw these things, and he quotes Jesus as saying, go to Jerusalem and wait there until you are endued with power from on high. And it's as though he is saying it just like I did. Like I did. Like I got endued, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Like I did, and he went filled with the Holy Ghost. Like I did, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness where he overcame all the temptations. And now Luke hears the words of Jesus echoing, I see it now, I see it now. Like Jesus was filled with the Holy Ghost, we have to be filled with the Holy Ghost. We have to be filled with power from on high. Should we hold off on obeying the Lord until we're more filled? Oh no, just keep obeying Him. There's nothing wrong with obeying Him ever. If you feel inspired or not, never mind, just keep obeying him. If you feel empowered or not, never mind, just keep obeying him. Obey him, obey him, obey him. Pray to him, pray to him, pray to him. But in the end, brothers and sisters, we have to be endued with power from on high. We have to have the Spirit of the Lord descend upon us and anoint us to do his work. 
to preach His Gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up the wounds that this world is creating in people's lives. And so i got, I got to stop talking and open up the front here. Those of you who want to be filled with the Holy Ghost, come, please. If you've never spoken in tongues, come and get filled with the Holy Ghost. God wants this for you. You're obeying Him. Keep on obeying Him, but get filled with the Holy Ghost so that you will be enabled and empowered. Have an eye for ministry, those of you who come forward. If there's somebody near you that needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost, to fill them. And let's get filled this morning. Hallelujah. Let's get filled with the Holy Ghost as God desires. I pray tonight that at prayer meeting, we begin with praying to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Does that sound right? And for God to fill central New York with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Does this ring a bell? The words of Jesus. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he not give him, will he give him a stone? And if he ask a fish, will he give for a, for a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Yes. Hallelujah. Ring a bell? Ring a bell? Guess what gospel it's in? Luke. It's Luke's like us. He didn't see the risen Christ with his own eyes. But he knew what to do. Get filled with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, let your life in this community grow. Let your word go out and bear fruit. Lord, there are good hearts out there. There are good spirits out there that are unchurched and, and ignorant, oh Lord. They, they, need a, they need a way to go. They need to be shown who is the great shepherd. Oh Jesus, we pray that we are filled with your Holy Spirit and well able to do the work that you have given us to do. I pray blessings on all my brothers and sisters as we go our separate ways, and may we grow in you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. See you tonight. There will be leadership seminar at 6.30. And don't forget, if you'd like to help out with babysitting in the nursery, please go to the nursery desk and and let uh, Sister Heather know. Thank you. Praise God. Have a great day.